0: There's no crying in baseball, but there is isn't preaching. You can do that. It's totally fair. We saw that last time. There was three times when they weeped in the passage. Hey, thank you, Jane. All right, we're going to be in Acts chapter 21 this morning. While you're flipping over to Acts 21, um, I just want to say how it does my heart good to see people that we haven't seen in a while. Uh, when this goes on and you, you kind of lose track of people and you don't see them and you wonder what's going on and you, you start, you know, if you're like me and you do imaginative things in your head, you start thinking they've left, they don't want to come back, they're gone, they're, you know, they're done with us. And, and just, <laughs> it sounds weird, but like so good to see people that we haven't seen in a while. And I know in Lapine they're doing the same thing. And it's just a reminder of God's faithfulness through this time because it is a weird time. Um, but speaking of weird, we're going to be talking about prophecy today, <laughs> so <laughs> we'll just continue on with that. Uh, chapter 21 in Acts is where we're going to be. In chapter 20, we learned about Paul's desire to make his way back to Jerusalem in time for Pentecost. Pentecost, he had this, you know, desire he had to be there, uh, and he's making his way that direction. We've been kind of going through that, really not knowing what awaits him when he gets there. Which again, for a person like me, I don't like that. I like to know what's even when I go to a store for the first time. I I get worked up, but it sounds silly. But like, what's it going to? What's going to be the process? Like, if I have to order, do I? Is it going to be obvious, or is it going to be, you know? And I do this kind of stuff. So this, like, for me, Paul not knowing would be terrifying. And we're going to see in this passage today several people prophetically confirming this very thing that that this might not go well for you, Paul, when you get there, Um, and that Paul shouldn't go because of it. So why is Paul so determined to go? Um, If 10 of you guys came up to me today and said, you know, Monday, if you drive into Bend, you're going to get beat up and arrested. Guess where I wouldn't go on Monday or Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, probably Friday, just to be safe. Well, we don't have to wonder why Paul was determined to go, because in verses 22 and 23 of the previous chapter, we read these words from Paul. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Paul says, I'm I'm constrained. That word literally means bound. I am bound by the Spirit to do this. He had a very strong conviction. For him not to go would have been disobedience in his mind. So he's going to go even if it means trouble. And as we get into our passage today, we're going to have to reconcile what appears to be a problem. And that problem is this. Paul is convinced that God wants him to go, but it seems like he's getting a different message from the prophets that speak up and the church that's around him. They're telling him God doesn't want him to go. So did, did Paul, or did God give Paul one message and the people of the church and the prophets another message? That's what we're going to be kind of wrestling with and looking at today. So chapter 21 picks up with Paul. He's just finished his meeting with the Ephesian elders. He's hitting the road again, and as Luke likes to do, he kind of uh, has he kind of does this travel log kind of thing like Rick Steves or something. You know, he just kind of goes through and says, "We stopped here, we did this." So, here we go in verse 1 of chapter 21. "And when we had parted from them, the Ephesian elders, and set sail, we came by a straight course to Cos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara." And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in the side of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for 7 days. And through the spirit they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So Paul and his companions were in a hurry, but but when they get to Tyre, they 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 got to spend a little time so they seek out the fellow believers and they spend a full week with them there. And Luke doesn't give much detail, but he does point out that the disciples um, there told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And it says that this was done through the Spirit, which indicates a prophetic word to Paul. Uh, The the message came to Paul through them, don't go to Jerusalem. And Luke doesn't correct this idea, which means that God was involved in this. But this is where the conundrum that I mentioned begins. And and the theme will be repeated as we go down. So in verse 5, Luke continues, When our days were ended... We departed and went on a journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside of the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. And then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him one of the seven uh means that Philip was an OD from chapter 6 that's an original deacon if you're not hip with the the lingo in the New Testament uh we also read about him in chapter 8 remember Philip was the guy that came like jogging up next to the eunuch in the chariot and and led him to the Lord and baptized him well when he finished with that it says that he went to Caesarea and that's where they are today apparently in this span of time Philip uh got married and had kids because the next verse tells us that Philip had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Most commentators um, believe that this gift of prophecy is a fulfillment of what we read in, in the book of Joel. Uh, Joel 2.28 says, And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. The fact that Paul says, he mentions Philip the evangelist and then talks about these four daughters that prophesied, it would be kind of an odd thing to mention unless he's, trying to establish the fact that these four daughters chimed in and told Paul the same thing that the other people had been telling him. That's the indication I get. I know I'm reading into it a little bit, but normally if you introduce somebody, you don't just talk about what their four daughters do. He mentions this because I think he's trying to say the case is mounting, right? The evidence is mounting right now. And then we get to verse 10 where the big guns roll into town when Agabus shows up. So verse 10 says, While we were staying there for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. If you don't remember Agabus, uh, he was written about in, in Acts chapter 11 where he accurately predicted a famine that was going to take place, and it did. And, and so the uh, the church in Antioch, he came to them and told them there's going to be a famine. They prepared uh, for food and so forth to be collected to send relief to the believers in Judea so that when the famine happened, they were ready for it. So Agabus is legit. He's already got, you know, he's bona fide. He's, he's known as, as as a guy that's a prophet. And so in a very symbolic act, much like the prophets of the Old Testament, Agabus acts out what's going to happen to Paul in Jerusalem. And we read that in verse 11. It says he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Trinitarianly speaking, which isn't a word, but it's a good one. The phrase, thus says the Holy Spirit, is the same as saying, thus says the Lord, which is what the Old Testament prophets would have said. So Agabus is claiming to speak the words of God. And he tells Paul two things. He says, when you get to Jerusalem, the Jews will bind you, and they will hand you over to the Romans. Now, interestingly, if you you were to look down at verses 30 through 33 of the same chapter, it, it discusses this incident, and it tells you what happens and And while the outcome of what Agabus said is correct, the details are a little a little wonky. Um, so the Jews did seize Paul, but the Romans are the ones who actually bound him, and the Jews didn't physically deliver Paul to the Romans. the Romans rescued Paul from the jews they were they were going to you know take Paul out, and the Romans got there, grabbed Paul, pulled him away, bound him um, now, in my mind, and i don't know how prophecy works i don't have the gift of prophecy so but in my mind. Agabus could have clearly seen this this kind of a vision or or whatever of Paul standing next to a group of angry Jewish people bound and being taken away from the Romans, and and what he said was going to happen was accurate. That doesn't change the the, the details because the way I view it, prophecy consists of three things: a revelation, an interpretation, and an application. Okay. So what God shows you or tells you, what you make of it, and then what you do with it. And it's important that you know that all those things exist. So I would argue that what God revealed to Paul, what God revealed to the disciples in Tyre that told him not to go to Jerusalem, what potentially God might have revealed to Philip's daughters, and what he revealed to Agabus was exactly the same thing. It's what they did with it that was a little different. So in chapter 20, Paul says, The Spirit testified that imprisonment and afflictions await me. That's what Agabus told him too. Exactly. Exactly. This is what's going to happen if you go there, and my bet is that the disciples in Tyre were shown the exact same thing, but they interpret it and imply and, and, and apply it differently. They do it the same way that the people that heard Agabus do and if you look at verse twelve, we see what happens it' said, and, and Luke includes himself in this by the way. he says when we heard what Agabus said, so here we, here we read it here in verse twelve, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem, so they heard the prophecy. And they interpreted it to mean, don't go. Same thing the guys in Tyre did. So my point is, there was nothing wrong with what God was revealing. It was accurate. It's how they interpreted it and applied it that caused the problem. They assumed it meant God didn't want Paul to go. But Paul knew that God wanted him to go, and that becomes clearer. um We know it now because, you know, looking back, I don't know if you've noticed that, but prophecy a lot easier to figure out when you look back at it than when you're trying to figure out what's ahead. I'm really good at, that, you know, looking back and getting it right, not as good with the other. Uh, we know Paul was supposed to go to Jerusalem. That part's unquestionable now. And that's why Paul says this in verse 13 to them after they tell him not to go. He answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. That's a great answer. That's always a great answer. I don't know if you know that, but you'll hear us pray that way a lot. You know, we'll hear prayer requests from people and we'll say, God, this is what we would like to see happen. We believe that this is what you can do. But at the end of the day, Lord, we trust you to do your will. Let that be done. That's exactly how Jesus prayed. Lord, if there's any way that, if there's another way that we haven't thought through here, that this, pe- this cup could pass for me, I'd like to know about it right now. But your will, not my will, be done. That's okay. It's okay to pray that way. And that's ultimately where they land, which is good. So they all wanted the Lord's will to be done. Um, in summary, God did want Paul to go to Jerusalem. And he made that clear to Paul. God also wanted to prepare Paul for what awaited him. So he made that clear through various prophets. God was not sending opposing messages. God doesn't do that. The confusion came in the way that the people understood and applied what God had revealed. So what does all of this mean for us today? What do we do with the gift of prophecy and for those who claim to have a word from the Lord? That's something we do here uh, at time from time to time. And I'll admit this is difficult stuff that not everybody agrees on and, and, and I'm going to do my best to kind of lay this out, and we'll see how it goes. There's generally two camps in the church today. Those who believe that the gifts have continued on past the apostles and on past the the final writing of the Bible, that, that the gifts have continued for today, they're called continuationists. Because they continue. There are those in the church that believe that the gifts have ceased. Once the apostles died, once the word of God, the the Bible was written and completed, there was no need for these gifts any longer. Usually they only include the the miraculous gifts, right? Healing, prophecy, and tongues. They don't say all the gifts, like teaching and things. but, But those gifts have ceased because they were only there to give the church a strong foundation. Once that foundation was laid, we don't need them any longer. So they would say that the gifts have ceased, and they're called cessationists. It's hard to say without, see, that's why we're six feet apart. Cessationists. Um, I think there are problems with both of these positions. And, and the first one, and I'm not trying to offend anybody, the the, the one that, the idea that they've ceased, I don't think there's good biblical support for that argument. I'll just say that. If you want to have that discussion with me, if you think that there is, um, I, we'll, we'll go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, chapter 13, we'll go to Ephesians 4. And I would have love to have that conversation with you. I just don't think that there's biblical evidence to say that they've ceased. That's where I'm at. The the problem with a continuationist view, the idea that they've continued, is that there's so often an overemphasis on the sensational. There's so often misuse, and and that's what we see Paul. Just telling them in 1 Corinthians chapter, you know, the, well, the, a lot of 1 Corinthians, where he had to correct them for their unhealthy use and unhealthy focus on the gifts. You guys are so focused on this stuff, you're missing the forest through the trees. It's about Jesus and what he's done. And if we're going to be known for something, let it be known about the person and work of Christ, not the sideshow. Now, can God use these other things? Yes, absolutely. And does he? Yes. But is that the whole point? No. And we can get off balance with those things. I think we've all seen abuses when it comes to the gifts uh, where they don't build the church up, but instead they, they end up causing division, distraction, or confusion, and that, that's not a good thing for the church. So I believe the gift of prophecy is still for the church today, but I believe we need to exercise caution. I might even say extreme caution at times, and I don't believe that it carries the same weight as what we see in the Old Testament, an Old Testament prophet. Do you remember, uh, so we shouldn't view it as, thus says the Lord or thus says the Holy Spirit in the, in the way that they did in the Old Testament. Do you remember what happened to an Old Testament prophet who got it wrong? You know, yeah, bad things happened, right? If that were still the consequence, by the way, for, for saying thus, say, thus says the Lord today, when, and you got it wrong, guess how many people would be saying thus saith the Lord? Probably not near as many, right? But that's not what we see now. So you see more people saying this. Today we have the completed scriptures. That's thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. This is it, right? They're sufficient. They're authoritative. They're reliable. They're true. We don't need to wonder about it. It's it's enough. It's more than enough. The same thing cannot be said for today's prophecy. That's why we need to be careful with it. Because if, and I say if, the prophecy is divinely inspired... The interpretation and the application may not be. We taint those things by our biases and beliefs, right? And you see that in the passage. Those that heard the prophetic word for Paul, what did they do? They automatically assumed God doesn't want that. We love you, Paul. We 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 don't want you to go, Paul. Of course, they did that. They don't want to see Paul get hurt. They don't want to see him arrested. They don't want to see him go away. So so. That biased everything, and we do the same thing very often with our loved ones. When we when we see somebody going through a hard time, when we uh, see somebody who's sick, our automatic instinct is to want to say, you know what? God wants you healed, God wants you well, because that's what we want. And and I know that ultimately that's what God wants in the, in, the, in the truest sense, because one day we will really be fixed and healed, and we'll see all these things come to fruition. But God doesn't always work that way here and now. Sometimes we go through hard things. Because God wants us to go through hard things, and we need to be willing to accept that. Now, somebody could argue that the same dangers that apply to prophecy could also apply to the gift of teaching, and I would agree with that. Teaching starts with something that is revealed from God, right? But then the interpretation and the application can 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 vary completely, can be contrary to God's intention and word. And it can even be outside of God's will. And unfortunately, we see that in churches everywhere today. They'll take a passage of scripture and then they'll say, well, here's the interpretation. Here's the way we apply it. And it's like, well, that's called heresy. <laughs> you know, That's not good at all. So it doesn't mean that that can't happen in regards to teaching. But there's some major differences between teaching and prophecy. And the first one is the certainty of what I would call the source material. <laughs> okay. This is the source material for teaching. The source material for prophecy is a person. Very different. We know that the Bible is God-breathed, fully reliable, and without error because it has been proven over and over again. The same can't always be said for an individual. The only way we know that if it was from God is is when and if it does come to pass very often. Until then, we don't know. And and God's Word, by the way, has been revealed for all to see. Uh, We don't have to wonder about the revelation because we can all look at it. We can all see it. Not true with an individual prophecy, and that's a massive difference. That means this is reliable, and it means that with prophecy, you have to wonder about the revelation because of the individual. You have to wonder about the interpretation. you have to wonder about the application which makes it much more unreliable. So when it comes to prophecy, we should consider a couple of things. And the, and the first one, I just want to point out, first Thessalonians 5:20 20 and 21 said that say, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. So don't despise them. Sometimes God uses this for the building up of the church, which we're going to talk about. Don't despise them. Be careful with them. So the first thing we need to kind of wonder is who's it coming from? That's what I already mentioned. But who is it coming from? Are they godly? Are they people you would normally take advice from? Have they been correct before? Like Agabus. If Agabus rolls in and says something to me, I'm going to, you know, wait, he's not going to now. Well, if he does now, I'm really going to pay attention. That'd be weird. But. But let's say, you know, somebody that's been right over and over again and is known in the church for that, that means something. But there are people out there who claim to hear directly from God. And they also claim that they're able to differentiate between their voice and the Spirit's voice. Voice, And I'll be honest and just say that that scares me. And the reason it scares me is because I know me. I know my own sinful heart. And I know that I'm perfectly capable uh, of having my voice Impersonate God's voice and be convincing. Okay. Have you ever seen a good impersonator? Uh, you know, somebody that does like a good De Niro or or Nicholson. I always want to say Jack Nicholas, which is one's a golfer and one's a actor. Not the golfer. I don't think anybody has a good invitation of the golfer, but the actor. Uh, when they do it, if they get their face gets so right and the voice gets so right that you almost feel like you're looking at them. It's so convincing. And I know that in my heart, I can convince myself that's God's voice. That's God's will. And I don't trust that. And that's just me, (laughs) right? When you want to hear something bad enough, you can convince yourself that it looks and sounds like God. We also have a crafty enemy who knows what bait to use to lure us away from God. He knows exactly. He knows the bait to use for you. He knows the bait to use for me. You know, a good fisherman knows, depending on what lake they're on or what river they're on, which bait to use. And And a crafty enemy like, like Satan himself, he knows how to bait the hook to, to get you. And he knows exactly what my weaknesses are. There's some things that, you know, you could bring my way and I'd be like, eh, whatever. And there's other things that I would just like, you know, in a, in a heartbeat. So so the next question that we, we can ask um, is this. Is it coming from multiple sources? Like we see in our passage today, numerous voices confirming the message adds weight. It doesn't make it absolute, but it's much better than just a single source. Having multiple people prophesy the same thing helps with credibility. But even as we saw in our passage today, they can come to the wrong conclusion. All of them can come to the wrong conclusion. Luke says, we, we all thought this was the wrong thing. The most important question to ask is, does it square with God's word? Does it square with scripture? If it doesn't, throw it out. Immediately throw it out. If it passes all of those criteria... I would pay attention to it, but as Wayne Gruden puts it, I like the way he says this. He says, maybe treat it on the same level as you would advice from a good friend. It's not thus saith the Lord, but don't ignore it. Don't despise prophecies. They might be there for your good and for your edification and for your safety. So don't throw it out completely, but maybe treat it like you would advice from a good friend. So why do we still need prophecy for the church today? Why, what's its purpose? Well, in 1 Corinthians uh, 14, Paul starts out by saying, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. And then he goes on to say that the reason for it is that it's going to strengthen, it's going to encourage, and it's going to comfort believers. It's going to edify the church. I don't know if you've noticed today, but you know what the church needs right now? <laughs> It needs strengthening, building up, and edification. It needs the encouragement to know that, you know what, God is in this. God is here. God has not left the building. The church is still important. We need to hear these messages. So the idea of a prophetic voice telling us it's going to be okay, that God has not, you know, abandoned us, things like that. Those are things we need to hear. You need to hear that in your own life sometimes. We need to hear it collectively as a group sometimes. And that's partly why Paul, if you if you look at Ephesians 4, it says, you know, he gave the apostles, the prophets. He mentions um why that is. And it's for the building up of the church to equip the saints for ministry and to build up the body of Christ. So we need these things. It's also to warn and convict people. There have been times when somebody could come along and warn you about something that you're doing or about to do that you shouldn't be doing. That's a good thing. Or convict you of some sin. There's, there's a passage again in, in verses 24 of chapter 14 of First Corinthians where it talks about the secrets of their hearts were disclosed and they fell on their face before God and worshipped him. We need that. We also learned something from the text today as far as why prophecy exists. And that's that God used prophecy to give Paul a heads up before walking into a really bad and hard situation. And, and a person like me with my personality and my temperament really likes this. If I can get a heads up about something, I want that heads up every time. I mean, every time. Right, I used to fix copiers for a living, and uh, you know, sometimes I don't know if you ever had a copier, but sometimes you get angry if you own a copier <laughs> or a computer. And so there were times when you would go in and you'd fix a copier, you know, or somebody would go—I won't say me, because it doesn't—somebody would go in and fix a copier, and as they're driving out of the parking lot, the customer's calling in and saying it's still jamming, and they're mad. And I would—I would always appreciate it when my boss would like give me a heads up. Before I had to walk back into that office because it's like walking into a buzzsaw, right? And if you're not aware of that, it's you know it's a little bit alarming. But if when when you know what's going to happen, you're like, okay, you can brace yourself, you can prepare for impact, right? So, I always appreciate heads ups, and and Paul, I'm sure appreciated it too. And it was extremely uh, gracious of God to do this for Paul, I think, very kind of him. It ultimately told him that God knew. What was about to happen? I know what's going to happen, Paul. It's not outside of my knowledge. It's not outside of my will. That's an important thing to know. It's almost as if God says to Paul, I know that what you're about to face is going to be hard, but I don't want you to be taken off guard by it or to think that I'm not with you through it or that I don't have a plan and purpose for it. And that's important for us to know as Christians. And that's ultimately what, what God is telling Paul by giving him this heads up. Now, there's this viral video going around right now. Some of you guys have asked us about it. Um, it's got like over 1.3 million views now on YouTube, which is kind of a big deal, I guess. So uh, it's a pastor in Kentucky who gives a prophecy of these three dreams he has. And, uh, and it's interesting. Uh, I don't know that I fully agree with it. You know, all the way through because at the end of this thing, his conclusion basically leaves you feeling hopeless. I mean, it is doom and gloom and hopelessness. And his application and interpretation are basically store up food, store up water, store up ammo, right? Get ready to fight or get ready for flight. That's kind of the message of it. And it's like, well, I don't know. That doesn't sound exactly like a message that we should go with, but the main revelation in each dream is interesting. It's two simple words for the church. Brace yourself. Brace yourself. Brace yourself. And I hear that and I think, well, that sounds a lot like what Paul just heard from God before he went to Jerusalem. Brace yourself. That message is consistent with what we say a lot of times in church for Christians as we get nearer and nearer to the end. Brace yourselves, Christians. It may get harder. It may not go easy for us. We might have some hard things coming up. Brace yourself. Well, why would, why would God want to warn us about this? Or, or why did he warn Paul about this? I don't know. Have you ever traveled on one of those trains at the airport that takes you between terminals? First time I went on one of those, I was, you know, just kind of minding my own business, had my luggage sitting next to me. And, and they're saying all kinds of things about the red zone and the white zone. And I wasn't really listening anymore. And, and then all of a sudden the train takes off. And they said something right before that, but I really wasn't paying attention. And I about landed in somebody's lap. Cause when those things go, they go, you know? And now I pay attention. There's a message that, that says, brace yourself. The, the train's about to go. And now, man, I'm like, I get, you know, I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm getting ready. Right? And I gird my loins as the, as the King James says. I'm, re- I'm ready when this thing's going. I'm not doing that again. And ultimately, I think that's, that's what we're trying to get across right now, guys. Um, I don't know what's going to happen next, but God does. And it might be difficult. And he wants us to know we need to brace ourselves. It doesn't mean God's forsaken us. doesn't mean that he's not in it. We know our future. We know what it holds. He's promised us this already. But on the way there, it could get interesting, right? That's why Ephesians 6.13 says this. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Right? You just picture yourself in that position. All right, here it comes. I'm going to stand. I don't know. If you've noticed, like, the political and social forecast, it seems to be showing, like, a high-pressure system building and, and dark clouds moving in. I don't know if you're seeing that, but but it's a little scary. You know, when you see a storm on the horizon, you're like, well, that doesn't look good. And that's what it looks like now to me. Are you ready if a storm hits? Are your feet on a firm foundation? Because if we are anchored in Christ, we have nothing to fear. No matter what comes our way. But our default seems to always be to try to outrun the storm. Right? To avoid Difficulty. If we see storm clouds, we go the other way. That's exactly what they did in our passage today. Oh, Paul, there's a storm in Jerusalem. You need to go that way. And, and believe me, this is something that resonates with me. When it comes to the idea of self-preservation, I mean, sign me up. I like the idea of self-preservation. I like the idea of avoiding hard things and difficulty. My tendency is to hunker in my bunker. Okay? I don't even have a bunker, but I kind of wish I did. Uh, it, it's, it's that idea of, okay, if something hard's gonna come, I need to like hunker down and, and, hide away and, and, you know, take care of me and mine first. But I don't see that being the Christian message, especially at a time when things are gonna get bleak. Um, somebody mentioned today, people are afraid, they have no hope. That means we need to be like those crazy people that charge into tornadoes. I don't know what they're thinking, but there's people that that chase tornadoes. And I'm not suggesting don't really do that. But as far as like the storm that's approaching and the people that need hope and to hear the message of the gospel, that's where we need to be. Paul saw it this way. I don't know if you noticed about this, but just like Jesus, Paul knew that God had important work for him to do. And that it meant that he would have to suffer. He would have to suffer so that others might not have to suffer. You get that? We might have to suffer so that others might not have to suffer. Paul believed hell was real. And he believed that people were going to go there if he didn't go to Jerusalem and on to Rome to tell them that there's a Savior who died for your sins so that you can be forgiven and have an eternal hope and a place to go where none of this storm stuff happens ever again. And Paul was committed to that message. That's why Paul said, to live is Paul. That's not what he said, is it? That's what I want to say. To live is Brent. That feels right. That's what the world is saying right now. No, he said, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. That's when I get mine. When I go to be with my Lord. Until then, to live is Christ. It's to to glorify him, to serve him, to honor him, to tell others about him. That's why Paul said this when he, when he heard what they said to him. What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And that's why he said, I do not account my life of any value nor precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. Paul was prepared for anything that came his way through the name of the Lord Jesus for the name of the Lord Jesus, are we. Many of you are afraid of of what's going to happen next. If I'm being honest, I am too. We don't know. But but the church needs to band together now. You know, this is a lot easier to do when we're together than we're apart. God knows what's going to happen next, and that's the important part. We don't know. He does. He, he There's no corner he can't see around. There's nothing coming that he's not aware of. And we need to trust in that and take confidence. So just like I, I suggested, maybe Paul said, or God said to Paul, I know that you're about to face some hard times. I don't want you to be taken off guard by them or to think that I'm not with you through them or to think that I don't have a plan and purpose in them. He does. And we need to brace ourselves and trust him. He's good. He won't fail us. He won't fail in the end. You know, read the end of the book. It's okay to do that. We win. We're going to get through this time, but in the meantime, let's try to grab as many as we can that are, that, are, that are hopeless and helpless right now and don't know Jesus to bring them along with us. So Father, we thank you so much that we get to meet outside in this glorious place with the sun shining on us and, and hear um, all about who you are and what you've done for sinners. Lord, thank you for sending Jesus Christ to die in our place, to suffer on our behalf so that we can have a home with you. that We can be forgiven and we can have an eternal home with you, Lord. If there's anybody that doesn't know Jesus today that's either watching or listening or here, uh, Lord, I just pray that they would understand that they have a need for him to confess their sin, to turn from from what they're trusting and from what they're doing and, and fully submit and surrender to Christ as Lord and Savior to believe that he died on the cross for their sins, that he was buried and that he rose again, and that now he waits for us, Lord, if we would just come to him as Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray that that's what would happen, and we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen.